Father, as we once again tonight revisit via uh, uh, some pictures uh, of old Jerusalem, uh, we pray that you, you help us to, uh, to be focused on the events that transpired in, uh, in the area that, uh, that we are going to, in our imagination, be transported back to tonight. And as we do so, Father, we, we pray to, to be very sober-minded about what all of this means for us 2,000 years removed from it all. And it's our prayer, Father, that, um, that not only do we begin to, uh, begin to realize the greatness of the life that lies before us because He was willing to give, give up His, but it, that it also in, instill in us, Father, a, a sort of this, this galvanized spirit that, that will share the gospel that not only transformed us, but is transforming the world. It is your power unto salvation. It is, Father, the, 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 through the cross and the resurrection, it is the gateway to, to our own personal hope in this world that is real, the things that we anticipate to happen in the future, Father, not in a, a wishful kind of hope, but in anticipation of, of, of things that are inevitable and things that will come to bear in this life. And so as, as we do it, Father, we ask for your blessing, eyes to see, ears to hear, in such a way that we turn toward you. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Uh, tonight... Um, uh, I want to start off by saying a couple of things about all of the debates that go on about things in Jerusalem. Uh, I've alluded to it a couple of times uh, in, in the last seven or eight weeks as we've kind of traveled through uh, uh, northern Galilee and, and, and south Judah and the last couple of weeks in Jerusalem. And, you know, the, the thing is, uh, being 2,000 years removed and having to, to uncover layers and layers and layers of dirt and remove layers and layers and layers of stone in an area that probably has as much history that has happened to it as any other place on the planet, there are always going to be debates about where things actually took place and, and where they happened in that city. And, uh, and those, those debates are not going to be resolved in our lifetime. There is always going to be uh, another angle. There's going to be an, another way of seeing things. There's going to be something that is going to be uncovered that's going to cause people to think this way or that way about certain of these events. And what we're going to talk about tonight is the, um, the, the, the trial, the, the, actually not even the trial, the condemnation of Jesus at the Praetorium as well as the crucifixion and the resurrection. And uh, I'll be the first one to say tonight that we are in the exact area where all of this happened, although we may not be on X marks the spot. And what we're, what we're going to do tonight is, is basically walk through the story of Jesus before Pilate and uh, leading to his resurrection on Sunday uh, after he'd been crucified and in the tomb for three days. And again, you, you know, if you, if you go to the... To the the academy or you go to to even to the internet you're going to find all kinds of different arguments for where these things happen or why they didn't happen and you have to figure these things out for your own uh what i'm going to do tonight is to show you the places that we visited back in july uh when uh, uh we were part of a, a a group in israel at this tour and so we're going to start off by 
by hoping that we get the slides to work. We're going to start over. Oh, hey, there we go. Well done. Or did you do that? Did I do it or did you do it? <laughs> well, we'll see right now. Oh, I think that was you. You know, you practice this stuff, and then it works, and then it doesn't work. Time out. 30-second time out. Now try. Boom. Let's give them a golf clap. Well done. Well done. Well done. Uh, I'm going to give you kind of a rundown of where we're going to be tonight in relation to the events that, uh, that uh, in the last couple of days of, of, of Jesus' uh, pre-resurrection life. Uh, as you remember, you know, the Temple Mount is here. The Kidron Valley runs like this. You have the Mount of Olives over here. The Fortress Antonia is going to be located right here. It was a four-tower fortress with walls, high walls around it. There was open space, kind of this paved area, the lithostratum uh, that was on the inside there where uh, the soldiers would, would muster, where they would, uh, where they would have different events. That was located on the northwest end and where they could actually get up into those towers and look into the temple area. The temple was probably located about right there. The Golden Gate is right there. Uh, right up here, uh, number two is the Damascus Gate. And as you know, if you go nearly straight north, maybe just a, you know, maybe about 1 o'clock, uh, 150 miles at 1 o'clock above Jerusalem is Damascus. This gate right here was known as the Damascus Gate. Uh, this gate right here is known as the Lion's Gate or, or Stephen's Gate. And that's where, as we begin this uh, series of slides, that's where we're going to enter. Now, the reason that they call it the Lion's Gate, as you'll see in a moment, is that there are lions that are carved into the rock above it. It's also called Stephen's Gate because uh, this gate right here is where, uh, through church history, going all the way back to uh, 2nd century and 3rd century, it is this gate right here, where, o overlooking the Kidron Valley, that Stephen, the first Christian martyr, was pulled you know, outside the city gate and stoned to death because he was called a blasphemer because of what he preached about Jesus of Nazareth. But we're going to be looking at this area right in here. Now you'll also remember, going back to the last time we did this, this area down here is known as the Ophel. The, the Kidron comes down like this. The Hinnom Valley goes like this. The Tyropian comes down like this. And this area right here, known as the Western Hill. The upper city and the lower city. Last time we were here, we were at Caiaphas' house. They had arrested Jesus in the Garden of Gethsemane. They had brought him the, across the Kidron Valley, had brought him up into the western hill area, had, had uh, Annas, 
had been with them. Caiaphas was with them. They now come back down into the Tyropian Valley, and they travel alongside the Temple Mount to the fortress Antonia, and this is where they present Christ to Pilate. There is a picture of the Lion Gate. You can see the lions up here at the top, uh, uh, going all the way back to, to ancient, ancient Christian church history. You know, this is the gate that uh, Stephen was dragged out of, and they stoned him, and Paul was there holding their clothes and approving of his death. Uh, this is the, uh, the model of the Fortress Antonia that you see in Jerusalem. This is the northwest corner of the temple right here. This is the Fortress Antonia. On the inside here is, is where we believe all of the, the stuff with Pilate and the Christ took place with the crowds and, and all of that. Um, as you go into this area today, now the Fortress Antonia doesn't exist anymore. Uh, there are remnants of it from the first century and from the second century when, when Hadrian did some, some rebuilding of it. But in, uh, in Latin, this is the place where Pilate had Jesus uh, beaten or scourged. And, and you know the story. They have brought uh, Jesus to Pilate. Uh, they have already in their mind decided, the Jewish people had decided that they're going to get rid of the Christ and that not only are they going to kill him, but to kill him is not enough, which tells you a lot about the political mach uh, machinations in their heart. Uh, politically, it wasn't enough to kill him. They had to discredit him. They had to have him seen as, as a criminal in the eyes of the people in order to thoroughly and, and completely and profoundly do away with him so that he was no longer a threat to them as they were perceiving it. And so they, they take him into the praetorium, or, or what is known in Aramaic as Gabbatha, and this is where they have the encounter with, with Pilate and, and the accusations and, and all of these things that take place. And although this is covered up with a modern roof, or I say modern, it, it's, it's at least not 2,000 years old, uh, but it's still covered up, the, the stones from the lithostratus are still there, that praetorium area. Now there is some debate whether or not these are the actual stones or if the actual stones are just one level one level deeper. I, I believe that these are the stones. I think that some of the arguments against it being the stones and that it's actually one level deeper depends on how you view the drainage situation. But these are the stones that, that go back to the time of Christ, and I believe that these are the stones of the praetorium where Jesus was taken by the Jews and, and handed over to Pilate. Uh, you, you sort of get a, a, with the feet up there at the top, you sort of get an idea of, of the size of these stones. I mean, this is a fortress. Everything is big. Everything is massive. Everything gives the presence of being impenetrable. Uh, again, you, you see these stones that date back to the time of Christ on the floor there where they would have taken him. Uh, what is uh, really significant about this particular area that they have uncovered is that the, um, the, the Roman soldiers, the past the day, you know, uh, they, were, they weren't at war every day. Uh, and, and being a soldier, as you know, even in modern armies, can, can be sort of a boring life. And so they have found carved into these stones the games that the soldiers would play. Uh, they had a game called Knuckle Bones, where you threw the, the knuckle bones of a sheep, and it was, it was sort of a, a game like Jack's, where you would throw one up, and you would try to get as many of the knuckle bones as you could and then, you know, grab the stone as it bounced once. Uh, they also had a game called the, 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 the Basileus, which means uh, the, the, the king or, or the kingdom game. And basically, this is what we see right here in front of us. 
And what you see, in fact, let me give you a better picture of it. Uh, you can see that there's some, some cuttings right here. Uh, there's some cuttings into the engraving in the stone here and here and in here. Uh, the light is not always the best. Sometimes you have a chance to get a better picture, and this is what it looks like. This stone right here with, uh, with the scorpion cut into it, that was the symbol of the Roman army of occupation. Um, you have uh, a, a B right here. It's sort of facing this way, this, in this direction up here, but that would be the game of the kings. And then you have this, uh, this circle, and basically you have, uh, you know, you're throwing a die type of a, of a game, and, and you're basically trying to move around this circle to where you end up in the center, and it, that's considered the tower, thus the name of the, you know, the game of the king or the tower of the king, and that would be the winner. Now, again, this is one of those things that gets debated from time to time. Is this a game where the Roman soldiers actually threw the die and the one that won got to choose how they would torture the, the king or the leader of the conquered people? Uh, others conjecture that uh, whoever won that game was going to be the man uh, and it would be prisoners, not the soldiers, but the prisoners would play it, and, and as they are going around the board, they're going to be tortured, they're going to be mocked, and the one, at the, he'd get to be king for a day, but then in the end, he's the one that is going to be killed. Um, it is thought that this is probably the game that was being played at the time when the, uh, the, uh, the robe and the scepter and the crown were put on Jesus as a part of the torture, and they mocked him, and they beat him, and, uh, and they were torturing him, and, and, you know, the king of the Jews, and, and all of that. And so when you go into this place, and you realize that, you know, they, they were probably not playing it over this, this particular game. There are several games throughout the stones, but you see evidence of the games that were in the place where Jesus was, was tortured, and where he was condemned to die, and it's a reminder that this just really happened. That, that, that we're not looking at a fairy tale, we're not looking at a compilation of myths when we read the Bible, but we're looking at something that took place in history. The gospel is not good philosophy. The gospel is good news. It's the good news of something that took place in history. And so, you know, here again, evidence, you know, of, of the kinds of events that were transpiring in the days that we're looking at in the Bible, the end of the gospels. Uh, just outside of... Of, of this, uh, this area where you go into to see the Praetorium or the Agabatha in Aramaic, you run into the Via Dolorosa. Now again, with the scourging of Jesus, uh, it, it, you know, it happened either in this area that we were just looking at, or it happened about 25 feet down the road from where this place is located, where the Church of the Flagellation is located. And again, uh, you know, everybody has a vested interest in them being the church over the site or to be the archaeological reserve over the spot. So, you know, there's a lot of argumentation. What we do know is that it was happening right there. Whether you were X marks the spot or 25 feet away from it doesn't matter. You're in the place where God, having become a man, not, not just a man, but God-man, man-God, was beaten half to death and beat to a pulp and beat into the dust and beat into the stones and bled and bled and bled and suffered for us. Here we have the Via Dolorosa. Uh, this is, again, heading a bit to the northwest of, of where we were just located. Uh, the roads are very, very narrow. This is, this is not necessarily one of the, uh, the, the 
uh, the nicest areas of Jerusalem, and you, you, you sort of need to stick together because it is so compact. But one of the things that you see in this picture, those stones right there, this is an Israeli defense force, and they are standing on stones that are still there from the first century. On this road, the Via Dolorosa would be the place uh, where, where Jesus would be the road, the, 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 the path that Jesus took to the cross and to the garden tomb. This is uh, the modern Damascus Gate. Uh, it's called the Damascus Gate. As I said earlier, Damascus is about 150 miles away. Uh, by car, you can get there in a couple of hours. Uh, if you were traveling by camel, it's going to take a little bit longer. But this is the modern Damascus Gate. The, uh, the ancient Damascus Gate was discovered when they dug quite a bit further down below where this gate had been built uh, along this wall. And that's where you see it. This walkway right here is where you just saw all of those people standing. The Damascus Gate during the time of Jesus was much smaller, and that is the place where we believe that Jesus was carrying his cross as he left the walls of Jerusalem and went outside the city. Get some perspective there. You have the more modern Damascus. I say more modern because it was, it was it's well over 100 years old, so it makes it an antique. And then you have the first century gate down there below it. And then you have a picture of a Roman soldier guarding the gate, uh, uh, recognizing it as the Damascus Gate during the first century. As you come out of the Damascus Gate, you find yourself outside of the old city. And what you have just sort of immediately in front of you is this main thoroughfare. I don't know if you can read it up at the top, but it says Sultan Suleiman. Suleiman, as you know, was, a, uh, was one of the Muslim conquerors of, 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 uh, of Jerusalem during the Crusades. Here's a road that is named after him. And right across the street from the Damascus Gate, as you cross Sultan Suleiman Road, is you have the Garden Tomb. Uh, one of the places that, again, it's conjectured, and probably the arguments against it are pretty strong, but you have the garden tomb where many believe that this is the area where Jesus was buried and where the first resurrection in the history of the world took place. But before we get there, um, in the ancient Jerusalem, as you walked outside of the Damascus Gate, you had this road right here. Now, this picture was taken from up on top of the wall looking down on the Damascus Road, right there at the Damascus Gate. And as you can see, and this was taken at the late 1800s, about 1890, I think, right in that area. And you see down here, camels, they're heading up north, and they're on their way to Damascus. Now, what is interesting about this place is that for years and years and years, all the way going back to the 4th century, there was uh, a spot where people believed that the crucifixion of Jesus had taken place. But it had become... Uh, sort of uh, controversial. Uh, people were not sure that it was ever within the city, that it was ever outside of the city walls, that it was probably inside the city walls, therefore kind of uh, disqualifying it. Although there were three churches that had built themselves over that place where they believed Jesus to have been crucified. In um, the 18, late 1800s, now this place had been, had been thought about earlier. But a fellow by the name of Gordon in the late 19th century said, I think that perhaps this is the place that meets the biblical text for the place where Jesus was crucified. And if you look at this area right here, what do you see? A skull. You see the eyes. You see the, the, the two eye pits. You see the nose. And you see the, the teeth or the mouth. 
right here. What they also discovered down here at the bottom of it were the remains of, of bodies. And um, what is known about this place is that it was a place of execution. That, uh, you know, how many witnesses did you have to have for somebody to be convicted in a crime according to uh, uh, Torah? Two, right? And so uh, you would have them come up to the top the, the guilty person would be bound. The two witnesses would be there. They would give their testimony. If, it was, if he was guilty, uh, he would be tossed. The person that he or she would be tossed, uh, bound, off of the top of this cliff down into this bottom. And if, if they were not killed immediately, they died soon thereafter from all of the, from all of the injuries. And there were, um, you know, there were the remains of you know, skeletons and things like that that had been found in that area. And again... One of the debates is, would, would the Jews have left the skeletal remains of people that had been executed in a place like that, or would they have given them a proper burial? But the Jews were probably not the only ones that used this place during the time of Jesus as a place of execution. Now, the Bible does not say that he was crucified on top of Golgotha. He was, uh, he was crucified you know, at the place called Golgotha. There, there's no road, and there never has been, at least in antiquity, there has never been a road that was recorded as having gotten people up there. There was a path, but there was not a road. And there's no way, when you think about it, there is no way that a man that had been beaten like Jesus had been beaten could, along with the help of Simon of Cyrene, gotten that cross all the way up to the top of the thing with all of the blood loss and the, heavy, um, uh, the heaviness of the weight of the wood. Where the Romans crucified people were along roads in the ancient world. And so... If this is the area, Golgotha, where Jesus was crucified, he was probably crucified along this road right here that was going to Damascus. Because when you read the accounts, I think it's uh, in particular Luke, the people would go by him and they would wag their heads and they would mock him and they would yell things at him, you know, if he's really, you know, he let him come save himself, come down off of that cross. That, the crucifixion of Jesus, if it's in this place, would have happened along this road right here. Now this is, again, uh, a little bit more of a close-up picture of what it looked like in the 1890s. Again, you kind of get an idea of, of, the, of, the, of, the, of the school with the eye sockets, the, the kind of the broken-off nose piece and, and the, the mouthpiece. And this is what it looks like today. Um, uh, you can see that this area, you know, it's, it's about... It's the, the, uh, the ground level has been raised up about half of what it saw, you saw in those 1890 pictures. These are buses that they've got parked on top of what was the old Damascus Road at that point. And last year, not even, not even a year ago, but during the winter of, of uh, this past year, the nose piece of Golgotha fell down. Just one morning, everybody got up, and the, the part of the rock, the limestone that formed the nose, had fallen down into this ditch area right here. But this is the area right here that was considered to be Gordon's Golgotha. And the arguments for this being the place or in the vicinity of the place where Jesus was crucified, I think, are very, very strong. Uh, right next door to it, I mean, you can, uh, you can be sitting in the garden tomb area and just look about 50 to 60 yards this direction and you see Golgotha. Where you're sitting at that point is the area of the garden tomb. This is, a, this is a, a tour guide who, uh, this guy's actually a missionary. He's, he's raising money to open a drug clinic in, uh, in Europe. He's actually from Minnesota. 
the type of ministry that he does in dealing with addicts, uh, really, really a kind of an emotionally draining kind of a work. And for about a month of the year, he takes time off from his work uh, as a minister and a missionary in Europe with, uh, to, to drug addicts to come and, and to do tourism at the Garden Tomb. He's been doing it for a number of years. Really, really great guy, uh, really knowledgeable guy, taught us a lot. And what he showed us was uh, in this area of the Garden Tomb Park is, is a tomb that going back to the Crusaders. Now again, that's a thousand years removed from us and a thousand years removed from the first century. The Crusaders thought that this was possibly the place where Jesus was buried and resurrected. To give you a little bit of perspective on the entrance to this thing, and what we're standing in is the, would be the, uh, the track for the stone that would have been rolled forward. Um, you, you got the, 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 the tres hombres from San Antonio standing in front of that, that door. As you can see, not, not really big at all. On the inside of it, you have uh, these dark red crusader crosses, uh, the Jerusalem cross or the crusader crosses uh, painted on this place. You, you used to be able to kind of get up inside of it and look around. Now, uh, because of security and all of that being heightened in the area, they have bars in front of it. But this is believed to be the place where Jesus was buried. Now, do I believe that this is the place that Jesus was buried? I doubt it very much so. Do I believe that this is possibly the area in which Jesus was buried? That is what makes sense to me. Now, this, this area, uh, you'll remember it's Joseph of Arimathea that takes the body and ta of Jesus and takes care of it, right? Now, the, 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 the Arimathea family was actually a family that goes all the way back to, to the northern area of Jerusalem, the area of Ramallah. Whenever you hear about things in Jerusalem, uh, the, the, the students uh, having riots and things like that, that's the area of Ramallah. That's where all the universities and the colleges are. That's where, you know, there's a lot of political sparks, you know, that get going. And, and this is where the Arimatheas are located. So there, there is some distance between this northwest area of old Jerusalem and the area of Ramallah where the family of Arimathea was located. Now, if you remember the story, Jesus is, 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 is crucified on uh, Friday. The Sabbath begins at sundown. It is in that late afternoon area that Jesus breathes his last and they recognize that he is dead. Um, Joseph wants that body to honor it and to bury it because he loves Jesus. But he cannot, by any stretch of the imagination, take that body off of the cross unless he has permission from Pilate, right? So he has got to send word from the cross area back to the praetorium, to, to the area where Pilate is located during the day, to ask Pilate for the body. What is it that Pilate questions? What do you mean he's dead? So he's got to have verification that he's really dead, right? And what was the verification? The spear into the heart, right? The word gets back to, to Pilate. Pilate grants, unbelievably, he's incredulous that he's dead, but he trusts his soldiers to know a dead man when they see one. And he gives permission to Joseph of Arimathea to take the body down. Now, we're not, we're not talking about any kind of modern machinery. We're not talking about modern tools. We're talking about these you know, rough pieces of, of timber. And we're talking about very crude, rough iron nails. And the tools to pull those nails out of... It, it all, the point I'm making is it takes time. It takes time. 
to get the cross down, to, to, to remove those nails. And what do they have to do before they bury the body? They've got to prepare it, even if it's quickly, because that body has to be in the tomb before what? Before sundown. Now, the whole thing that I've just described, is that's got to happen in just a matter of hours. And so the Arimathea family, being affluent, he buys, I believe, in this area. I don't believe it, it could be, but I don't believe that it's this particular tomb. But this is a quarry area. And he buys, and it's, it's an area that is being quarried at the time that Jesus is crucified. I believe that he buys in this area where this tomb is located that was an active quarry during the time of Christ. He buys a tomb that has never been used in order to get Jesus buried before the Shabbat or the Sabbath begins. On the day of the resurrection, after Sabbath has ended at sundown on Saturday, it begins sundown Friday, ends sundown Saturday, what is the first thing on Mary's mind as she goes to the tomb? She's got to properly prepare the body. But what is it that she's going to have trouble with? Rolling the stone back, right? And it's, it's, uh, it's as she's going and thinking about, in her grief, the death of someone that she loved very much, the need for her to be able to prepare that, that body properly, and then who is going to move that stone that she encounters the resurrected Jesus. And again, from another angle, uh, you have a picture of this, this garden tomb area. Now, uh, you know, one of the things that you, you just can't help but think in those hours that you spend walking from the Lion's Gate or Stephen's Gate to Gabatha, the Praetorium, down the Via Dolorosa, outside the city wall at the Damascus Gate and go out into that part of Jerusalem where Jesus possibly was crucified and buried and resurrected is, is that he died for us. And, and the Bible makes it very explicit that that part of, of, of what it was to be the Messiah was not just to die for sin, but to suffer for sin. And sometimes we get into this, we get into this mindset of thinking, you know, woe is Jesus, woe is Jesus, woe is Jesus. When Jesus, I believe, ran to the cross. One of the most astounding facts in the Bible, I think, and I, I hope to draw this out in Sunday mornings in the next couple of weeks, is that God refused to be God without us. That he refused to be God without us. He could have destroyed everything. He could have been God without any of us. But in love, he chose to be God with us. And when Christ grew into a man and began his ministry, the very first thing that is said to him by Satan is, there doesn't have to be a cross for you. There doesn't have to be a cross in your life. You don't have to do, you know, be glorified in that way by the cross. Why don't you just throw yourself off at the temple? He quotes scripture and you'll be glorified and exalted and you won't have to do any of this. All you've got to do is worship me and I'll give you all the kingdoms that you see. And Jesus says, no, I will only worship God and I will, I will not be put to the test and I will do things God's way. Sometime, sometime later, you know, he's, he's, he's in the region of, of Caesarea Philippi, and, and he starts talking about, you know, who people think that he is, and wondering, you know, asking out loud to his disciples, who do people say that I am? And then he asks, who do you say that I am? 
And they say, well, Peter, you know, you're the Christ, you're the Messiah, the Son of the living God. He says, blessed are you, Simon Bar-Jonah. You know, God's revealed this to you, and so on and so forth. And then he begins, especially in Mark's Gospel, he begins after having been called the Christ and the Messiah, the anointed one, he begins to talk about, but this is what happens to the Son of Man. He's going to have to suffer, he's going to be crucified. And in Mark chapter 8, 9, and 10, those three consecutive chapters, he talks about what it means to suffer. But you know what it is that Peter says to him? You don't have to go to the cross. In fact, you shouldn't go to the cross. If you're the Messiah, the Son of the living God, I can't imagine you going to the cross. And what does Jesus say to him? Get behind me, Satan. At another point, as he's heading towards Jerusalem, he says that he fixed his face in a focused, determined way towards Jerusalem. And Thomas says, you know what? Let's go with him that we might die with him. He knew what was going to happen. When he crosses that hill and he sees Jerusalem and he sees the lostness, he sees the darkness, what does he do for the city? He weeps for it. Now he struggles again in Luke chapter 22. But Jesus ran to the cross in a manner of speaking. Because as the Hebrew writer says, it was for the joy that was before him that he endured the cross. And you keep asking yourself, what is that joy? I mean, what joy did he not have in heaven that he needed to come to earth and endure the cross to receive? He was already God the Son. He was already in perfect unity with God the Father, God the Spirit. They had created, they, had, they knew what beauty was. They, 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 they were in perfect harmony, perfect love. They were in perfect celebration of, the, of, of, their, of their union as the Trinity, the triune God. So what is it that that Hebrew writer is talking about? His joy was you and me. That's how he endured the cross. So that joy set before him. Um, next week we're going we're gonna to talk about, and this will be the last one, we're going to talk about the place where uh, Jesus reinstates, reinstates Peter. He eats a meal with his disciples. And uh, um, one of the guys that traveled with is also going to speak that night. But one, one of the things that, that, that connects with what we've talked about tonight and what happens on the north shore of the Sea of Galilee when Peter's reinstated is that not only did he die on the cross because he loved us, but it's that love that brings us out of darkness into light, out of a non-relationship with God into a relationship with God. And it's that grace that he's trying to get across to Peter when he says, do you really love me? When Peter is reinstated and he tells him to feed his sheep ben's going to lead us in a song right now and and i i don't know where you are tonight when it comes to your relationship with god it may be that you you've not really thought in some profound ways recently about the greatness of the love of god for human beings that god refuses to be god without us and you're thinking about, you know, there's the need to renew and there's a need to be sort of restored to that fervor and that first love and all of that. And maybe that's you tonight. We'll have our shepherds down here at the front to pray with you and to talk with you and to encourage you. Or maybe you've never taken advantage at all of what is available to you in the gospel, the grace that comes to us through faith by what Jesus has accomplished himself through faith. We get his righteousness in order to be righteous before God. We can share with you tonight the full story of the gospel and how to come into that relationship with God. But come down to the front and talk to these shepherds about that as we stand and praise God together.
Let all that is within me cry worthy. Let all that is within me cry worthy.